I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On the upcoming episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk about trade leadership coming from Washington, both the administration and the Congress, and we'll talk about European farm protests. Finally, we'll get into some data flows, all on the next episode of Trade Guys. And Trey, guys, we're back for what promises to be, as Bill just said, off camera, an interesting episode. I think it's always an interesting episode with you guys, but this is going to be a really interesting episode because I want to talk about a Wall Street Journal editorial that was published this week. The story is called The Story Behind Biden's Trade Failure. Emails show how the left has co-opted Catherine Tai. Guys, is this real? What it, what are we looking at here? And and why has she been, according to the Wall Street Journal editorial board, co-opted? Well, I don't think she's been co-opted or hijacked. I think she's a willing participant, maybe just uh, semantics. But there's been a fight within the Democratic Party about trade for a long time. It flared up most obviously in TPP. And it's been a chronic fight between the Democratic left and the Democratic center. I mean, the progressives arguing that that the trade agreements don't benefit workers. They benefit big corporations and their CEOs who get enormous uh, payments. And the workers get left holding the bag. And the center part of the party saying that trade creates jobs, creates exports, trade creates growth. And I think if pressed on the, the worker point would say, you know, there's a lot of other policies that if you're worried about the distribution of benefits, uh, we should be talking about tax policy. We should be talking about adjustment assistance. We should be talking about uh, education policy. If you want to redistribute the benefits, the trade agreements create the benefits. And the progressive response has sort of been, you know, they don't create benefits for the right people. So this is kind of morphed into, so let's stop creating the benefits. You know, that's sort of the, the left. And the the political, this is all politics in my view. And I think the journal is onto something here in I've, I've actually met with the Wall Street Journal editorial board in the past, and I uh, rarely agree with them, but this is one where I think they're on to something. The people in the White House, uh, a lot of them, are really convinced that um, Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election because of TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Which is, she was one of the architects of TPP, if yes, our listeners yes. recall, but and I, then I, abandoned it during uh, the campaign. Yes. I mean, I think I think the argument that she lost because of that is nonsense. I don't think trade uh, ever has that big an issue in an election. Um, it, it only had has that big of an issue on the trade guys. <laughs> you know, only on the trade guys. Uh, but we're not running for president, at least not yet. Not yet. Uh, we're, both, we're both clearly in the right age group to do that, though, I would it's point out. It's incredible. You guys, you know, just by age alone, you're qualified. It's good to know. Yes. Well, yes, exactly. But, you know, I think if to the extent that she had a problem with it. It was because she flip-flopped on the issue. It was exactly what you said, Andrew. She was for it, then she was against it. Uh, and people who were, remember the John Kerry campaign, remember that he ran a follow the same thing, except it was the war. You know, I was for it and then I was against it. So people don't like obvious inconstancy, but be that as it may, the Biden folks are convinced that's why she's lost. They're convinced that 
Uh, it's a mistake to have another intra-party battle over trade. Um, and the best way to avoid having an intra-party battle under trade, uh, over trade is to sweep it under the rug. Uh, and, but what that, and, you know, not do things that are going to provoke uh, the left. What that means in practice is that you outsource your trade policy to the left wing of the Democratic Party uh, because you don't do what they're against. For some people, this is a political judgment. What USTR has been doing, in part by, through Catherine and in part through others, you know, is constructing an, uh, an intellectual narrative to justify what was essentially a political decision. And the intellectual narrative is the trade policy for the workers. You know, our policy doesn't provide benefits to uh, workers. And if you drill down to what that means, it means more enforcement of our trade rules, which I don't think people are against. Uh, but it means uh, redistributing the benefits, including by rules of origin that promote more domestic content. And it means reshoring, you know, trying to bring jobs back here, which they haven't been all that successful at, but that's, that's the goal. And what it doesn't mean uh, and this is the important part, what it does not mean, and this is why the journal is upset, is agreements that, uh, trade agreements that involve market access or involve making concessions to other parties. And, uh, you know, this is a, the, the progressive philosophy here is when they look at a trade, they think imports. If you talk to the business community and ask them, what does trade mean to you? They think exports. So there's a fundamental divide here. If you think imports, then you don't want to do trade agreements that might involve letting more imports in. And of course, you know, a trade negotiation, both sides have to give something. If we want to get more app market access for our farmers uh, or for our manufacturers or for our service providers, we're going to have to give. And uh, the administration doesn't want to do that. And so uh, I, you know, but I don't think Catherine's been hijacked. I think she's one of the leaders of the, uh, one of the leaders of the pack. Let me read a sentence from this editorial from the Wall Street Journal editorial board. And I quote, quote, no longer does Washington aim to lower trade barriers and expand American access to foreign markets. It wants trade share and production regulated by governments. And when they says no longer does Washington, I don't think they just mean the Biden administration. I think they mean both parties, correct? Well, there's certainly free trade is, uh, is doesn't have many defenders in Washington. But there's a specific, and Bill just stated sort of the general angst over trade in the Democratic Party, which is all true. The, the Journal Editorial Board focused on a specific sector, which is high technology, specifically the platform internet-based uh, uh, communications companies and the rules governing cross-border trade in digital products. It's been a long-standing advantage for the United States in this sector. We have the most important companies. These companies also point out they're the largest taxpayers in this country. They're amazingly successful because of the American model. And, and it's been a major negotiating objective since this sector was invented in the 90s to keep these markets open and favorable ter on favorable terms for the platform companies to succeed, which is, which is, we think, or at least I think, good for America. It's good for American jobs. It's good for American innovation. What the journal editorial board took particular note of is that uh, Ambassador Tai, rather than talk with Congress about how to open markets for these American companies, she's talking with regulators, the antitrust regulators in the United States and Europe about how to impede these companies. And uh, I think the final point the editorial makes is, look, 
if you, if you can't win the if the Biden administration can't win the argument with the Congress, it's got no business going and trying to get trying to you know help the foreigners succeed where they fail. But I think more importantly, Ambassador Tai is the trade representative, and uh, the Congress has specific powers in Article One, Section Eight, to regulate foreign commerce. But she's going to do her job. She needs to talk to the Congress and not the Federal Trade Commission or European antitrust regulators. One of the issues here from the standpoint of the Democratic left is, is about antitrust, and, and it, uh, we should rephrase, it's about competition policy. I think the, the left tends to uh, be more sympathetic to the European view about how to regulate competition as opposed to the American view. The American view for 50 plus years has largely been focused on consumer impact and trying to identify consumer impact. And if they, if the regulators, which means the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission, conclude that uh, there's a, a negative uh, uh, consumer impact by a merger or by some anti-competitive activity, then they should they should take action. The European approach tends to look less at at the specific consumer impact and and more at market structure, and it becomes much more of a basically kind of a big is bad argument that if you've got big companies, then you can assume that something anti-competitive is happening because you can assume they're crowding out the small ones. It's a different regulatory approach. It's a different philosophy. I think that the Democrats left wing in the United States would like to move U.S. policy more in the direction of the EU. And that has a practical trade effect, which is instead of beating the, US, the EU over the head over its regulatory policies, on big tech, like the Digital Market Act and the Digital Services Act, which are, in my view, overtly discriminatory against American companies, they want to, uh, the left wants to tone that down because they would prefer that uh, the regulators in the United States do the same thing. You know, and the problem they've got is they don't have the votes to, they don't have the votes to do that in Congress. Uh, and so instead of uh, trying to go back to Congress and get Congress to focus on antitrust and do his job. And I mean, they've tried. This is not being ignored in Congress, but the votes aren't there to do much of anything on this subject. Instead, what they've, they've done is convince USTR to argue in favor of, quote unquote, policy space, which is a term that drives me up the wall. Policy space is a term the Indians uh, use primarily because they don't want to do anything. And so they say, we need policy space, which means we need time to think, which really means we need time to do nothing. But now we have USTR arguing for policy space, meaning that we need time to think. They've not yet talked about how long it's going to take them to think about this. And the result is that our industry, and Scott's right, we are the global leaders on, on digital technology, digital trade. And we're under attack all over the place by companies that would you know, like to be the next Apple or the next Google or the next Meta. And uh, it seems to me that our government's job ought to be to defend our guys, not to, you know, enable the competition. And that, I think, is what the journal's upset about. Is enabling the competition. Well, I don't see what the point is. I mean, the, the theory, I think, is that because we have these big companies, it's sort of per se anti-competitive. But the regulators here have not come to that. I mean, they may come to that conclusion, but they're not there yet. I don't, I think we need to have a, a more informed national debate about what competition policy ought to be and what it uh, what it means it seems to me that that just saying that big companies are sort of by definition bad 
is not a very nuanced approach. I mean, I can see an argument where you would say that looking at consumer impact is not the only thing and that we may have tilted in past years too far in that direction. But we're not, I, I don't, you know, uh, we may, past policy may have been unbalanced, but what the left wants to do is equally unbalanced in the opposite direction. Be nice to land in the center, but I don't see a lot of people pushing for that right now. All right, guys. Well, we're going to have to watch this one. And another one we've been watching that I want to talk about is the European farmer protests. It's interesting. And Scott, this is one of your, you know, big things. You're a farm guy. What are European farmers so ticked off about? Well, a lot of things and a few very specific things. So first, let me let me confess to being pro-farmer. And I have great respect for farmers and the people who work in agriculture from the technological side or the manufacturing equipment side or the production of the, of the products themselves. And I think it's, it's always for me the starting point with agriculture is, is they proved Reverend Malthus wrong. Reverend Malthus thought population would increase so fast and we'd never keep up with food production and we'd all starve to death. We now produce enough food for the nine, mil, 9 billion people who are on the planet. Now, that's not to say everybody on the planet goes to bed with a full tummy because there's still our distribution problems, which I acknowledge. But in aggregate, uh, farmers around the world and agricultural technology can feed 9 billion people. It's a remarkable thing. It's something no one expected even maybe 20 years ago. Uh, but it's, it's a, quite an astounding achievement. And the farmers in Europe, I have respect for them as well. I mean, they operate in a very high cost, high regulated, highly regulated environment. Now they have the common agricultural policy, which helps support prices to some extent. Uh, but it's a tough business. They're busy people. They're they're pretty good at what they do. Otherwise, they they wouldn't have survived in the business. And they don't go out and protest like, say, a university student. Who, I guess we've had some. Uh, We've had some university students go on 12-hour hunger strikes. That's not the way the farmers approach this thing. It, when you get them riled up enough to get out of the, uh, the tractors in the streets, something's going on. And here I think it is, in the main, uh, it is the energy transition. The green energy transition is not cost-free. And nobody's figured out, no politician has figured out how to pay for it. Now, politicians are great at robbing Peter to pay Paul. But this time, the ticket is fairly large, whichever, whether Paul gets it or Peter. And the farmers are basically fed up with how much they've had to swallow. So whether it's about the price of diesel fuel or the price of you know, nitrogen fertilizers or ammonium, as we talked last week, is made from natural gas. So how much of the burden is being placed on farmers? And I think it's seen to be unequal. There, somebody blinked because these tractors on, on, the, on highways led the European Commission to rethink whether or not they were going to, whether or not they had an equitable plan. Now, they probably don't. That's the, that's the, the, uh, the spoiler alert. Uh, but there's some politics that has to go on here if, the, if Europe is serious about completing its energy transition. Uh, because uh, I think the farmers are, have, have basically decided we've had enough, you know, sort of lousy decision making by out of touch people. Yeah, and it's time to do something. So, Bill, are the EU policymakers adjusting their decision-making after this backlash? Well, it sounds like it. I think the, the thing that's noteworthy this time is, first, farmers are always unhappy. My father-in-law was a farmer, a small cattle farmer in Pennsylvania, 
and he was always unhappy, grumpy about something. So nothing, what is nothing new in one sense, but another, what is new is the, in Europe is the breadth of it. Uh, you know, you can usually count on the French farmers to be up, to be upset and to roll out the tractors and block traffic. But now it's all over the place. It's Belgium, Spain, multiple countries are protesting. Greece and there's a, a a wide range of protests. It's diesel fuel, as Scott said. It's a high price of fertilizer, and it's uh, threatened uh, reductions in subsidies because European agriculture benefits from from subsidies. But also, it's um, the bane of all farmers in in their minds is overregulation. You know, it's the government coming in and telling us what to do. Uh, and in the EU, I have to say they got a point because the EU is a is a, is a, the European Commission in particular, and we've discussed this in the in the in the uh, environmental context with context with the carbon border dustbin measure. You know, the the Commission is uh, is pro regulation and it's pro prescriptive uh, legislation. That is, you know, the U.S. approach tends to be here's a standard of emissions or whatever or. or you know, number of rat hairs in the ketchup, which actually is a standard that you have to meet and, you know, get there any way you can. The European Commission approach has been sort of the opposite. Is here's how you should do it. And if you do it this way, you're okay. But if you don't do it that way, then we're going to fine you or punish you or do something. So that puts them in the business of telling the farmers, you have to farm this way. You have to leave a certain percentage of your fields fallow. You have to do uh, follow these guide these emissions guidelines. You have to f- follow the, these sets of instructions, and the farmers inherently rebel at that. Uh, and the fact that it's so widespread, I think, is the problem. There's it, a depth it, and intensity that's different than previous. Yes. Uh, and if you'd like to, if our listeners would like to get a a view of this in a sort of subversive way, there's a show streaming on Amazon now called Clarkson's Farm. There are two seasons. Clarkson is Jeremy Clarkson, who was the, the well-known host of a show called Top Gear. So he's an automotive commentator, a very funny Brit, and uh, ran a great show for many, many years on the BBC and then independently. Well, he's retired rich, and he went to his farm in the Cotswold. The, the, sub-tip, the, the primary theme of, of Clarkson's farm is what a bumbling fool he is as a farmer, uh, despite the fact he's a rich guy. Uh, and a famous guy. But the subtext is how regulation makes farming so much more difficult than it needs to be, and how smart you have to be to overcome the pinheaded, out of touch bureaucrats that make these regulations. So if you doubt a regulation, just watch five episodes of either season of Clarkson's Farm, and you'll come away shocked with what these people have to go through. And that's a good recommendation. There, there's some signs of, of, change. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, announced that they're going to put out a new package of streamlined regulations. So we'll, we'll see. So, so that was, you know, that was my next question is, you know, can this impact upcoming EU elections? And obviously it can because they're trying to mitigate that, that impact, correct? Look at the election, election in Holland a year ago. Boy, the Dutch farmers, which didn't exist as a political party, became the majority of seats in the Dutch. They had the largest number of seats, not a not an outright majority, but but they hit the the most seats in the parliament. The Dutch the farmers majority. sounds like a name for a new wave band. It does, and they're the let me tell you, Dutch farmers are worthy of respect. Holland is the second largest agricultural exporter in the world. Really, look at the size of Holland. 
and, and, they, and the they conditions there. high tech agriculture. It too. is amazing what those what those farmers are capable of, and so full respect. Yeah, but it is a great band name. I, I, trade guys, I think we need to go to uh, Holland on a on a uh, trade guys fact finding mission. Yeah, to check fact finding mission to Amsterdam. Let's All go right. check it out. And we do some episodes. We could bring some farmers on the show. For sure. We've had farmers on this show before, as we you have. all recall, and we will again. Let's wrap up today by talking about data exports and the White House's latest executive order on that. Can you tell us a bit more about the rumored Biden administration executive order on data flows and what kind of data is it going to impact? Well, unfortunately, I'm in the awkward position of having been briefed on it. And it was off the record. So there's a lot of things that I can't say. Okay. So, so you know things is what you're saying. I know things, uh, although things change too. I, uh, I had thought uh, the most, I've been briefed twice on it. The most recent one was last week. And I thought it was going to come out by now, the executive order, but it hasn't, which may mean, you know, inertia in the ranks somewhere or the, you know, the copier broke down and they just didn't get it out. But, or it could mean that there's internal rethinking going on based on the consultations they had with people like me. But I can say a couple things about it that are noteworthy. First, sort of big picture, it's going to be like the, like the outbound investment executive order that came out last August in the sense that it's going to be sort of pro- prospective and notional. In other words, they're not going to just promulgate a rule and say, here's what's, what we're going to do. They're, what they're going to do is lay out, here is a long list of things that we are considering doing. And we want to have a comment period now where you guys can tell us what was right about this, and what was wrong. Um, so what the, the executive order is really going to lead to what's called uh, an ANPRM for the walks in the audience, which stands for Advanced Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. So they're going to put a proposed rule out there and then open it to uh, extensive public comment and, and see what they get. I think there's a couple things that are noteworthy about it. The thing that I noticed about it is that the program that they're going to put into place is going to be run by the Department of Justice uh, and the Department of Homeland Security, even though it's about exports. It's about exports of data. And I had thought that the Commerce Department and BIS, the Bureau of Industry and Security, would do it because they control exports. But the answer is no. This is going to be a justice and and, uh, homeland security uh, issue. That's one thing to keep in mind. For the lawyers out there, the authority they're going to use to do this is the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, otherwise known as IEPA. So the president will have to declare a national emergency to uh, implement whatever it is that he ends up implementing. That's kind of unusual for something that's something like this. It's not with emergency, you think catastrophic event that just happened and this is, you know, chronic and long term. But you know, that's what they've chosen to do. It's not going to be case-by-case review. So it's not like people who have data are going to have to come in and uh, get permission on a case-by-case basis to export their data. Instead, I think going to phrase, uh, there are countries that we don't want you to export your data to, the famous term countries of concern. And, you know, the the big six are, haven't changed. There's a there's a, uh, a reference to this in regulation already. It's, you know, uh, Iran, uh, Sudan, Syria, North Korea, Cuba, Russia. So there's, you know, 
significant bars on export into countries of concern. Uh, but then they're also going to identify sort of entities of concern, people that, uh, or entities, which could mean companies, that the government has decided maybe using uh, the, the large volumes of data, and they're talking here about big volumes of data for nefarious purposes, for espionage, or for gathering information about uh, individuals in the United States that could be used for uh, to compromise them in, in some form. And they're really going to focus on geolocation data, like your phone provides, biometric data, genomic data, personal health data, personal financial data, other data that might identify you. They don't want to get into too deeply into sort of financial transactions or financial data. That's always been a sensitive issue because the banks and financial institutions are very focused on on non-localization of data and free flow of data because they want to be able to move it around the world because their transactions go around the world. And you really compromise banks' ability to be global if you limit the, their ability to move data around. So the, you know, the administration is very aware of a whole bunch of, of uh, potholes on this particular road. You know, their, their goal is not to be too broad and not to sweep in a lot of controls that that are unnecessary and nobody wants. On the other hand, they want to be able to catch some things that they're very much afraid of, of happening, which is large masses of data ending up in the hands of people that will use them to ill purposes. What will happen is this thing will come out. There'll be a comment period. I think the comments will generally be either very specific, what about this issue, what about that issue, or broader complaints that the, the what they've done is too broad, paints with too broad a brush and is going to catch too many things that don't need to be caught. So we'll see. Uh, that's, and it's being phrased not, not as, this is what we're going to do. It's going to be phrased like the last August ANPRM, which is, we are thinking about doing this. We are thinking about doing that. We are thinking about the, doing the other, uh, this. The August executive order, I think, asked something like 64, 69 questions of commenters. So it really was an open process. And we haven't seen any conclusion to that yet. So it's now, what, six months down the road, and they're presumably working on the comments. Uh, we're going to see the same thing on this. So nothing's going to happen soon, but it'll make a big splash when it comes out. Well, if I can make a couple of comments from someone who has not been briefed, but also wasn't born yesterday. Uh, <laughs> first, one of the reasons that administrations, not just this one, like to use IEPA, this Emergency Powers Act, is if you don't have a statute to authorize the activity, this is a handy you know, skyhook. And what I noted is much of the activity they want to examine and control is not just perfectly legal, but widely implemented by companies all around the country. Right? Direct marketing companies have for years sold mailing lists. You get on that mailing list because you get permission to be on it. It's sold to people who will use it to market your products. It's been happening so long before the internet, and this is no different. For instance, I, I think all of you, Bill, you and and uh, and the Andrew both thoroughly read the terms and conditions when you from from Apple when you got your new iPhone. Of course, I'm sure you did because because of course. you clicked. You? I accept. All right. Now your iPhone tracks you when it's when your geolocation when it's in airplane mode. So you know this none of this is new. All of it's going on all the time. You know, and I, I read through this, and it's uh, hear about these countries of concern. 
All I could think of was Otter from Animal House saying, wait a minute, they can't abuse our pledges. Only we can abuse our pledges. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when you can't track our citizens, only we can track our citizens. Right. Okay. And there's there's a dose of that in here. So I think we've got to get through that. Now, look, consumer privacy has been a much bigger issue in Europe. But because of Europeans' uh, desire and, and, and first mover advantage in regulation, GDPR, which is a fairly solid privacy law when it comes to electronic commerce, is basically practiced by every American company because they all do business in Europe. So a lot of these problems have been solved. But at the end of the day, so economy is suspicious. But I would also note that security begins at home. I have personally had my personal data compromised twice. Both of them because of, of breaches to U.S. government databases. One of them to, to maximize the gall associated was the GAO, who I provided information, personal information to get a security clearance, which their system then leaked or was breached and, and the data got out. So how about we fix the government's own systems and then worry about what, what list sellers are doing? Just a just a thought for priorities. You know, that happened to me when I was on the China Commission. 2,957, as I recall, my emails ended up in the public domain, thanks to a hack in that case. But it was from a .gov system, right? It was, yes. Yes. And that then took us down, uh, we talked to the FBI, and that took us down this odd rabbit hole of sort of who did it and why and what was the point. Uh, and... I finally concluded that, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't clear. It, it, on its face, it appeared to be that somebody in India had done it, uh, which didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, but then, you know, this is how you get what happens when you're mildly paranoid. You think, well, it wasn't really the Indians. You know, it was the Chinese pretending to be Indians. You think it was the Indians. And then somebody else would say, well, no, 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 it really was the Indians, but they did it in such a way so that you think it was really the Chinese pretending to be Indians. And you can just go back and forth on that forever, and I don't think they ever found out who. who You're making me very paranoid, Bill. Very Uh, paranoid. Well, it's what the late Henry Kissinger said, you know, even paranoids have real enemies. So, and of course, the trade trade guys, of course, have no enemies. So We have no enemies. Not not at all. Only friends. Just friends. All are welcome. Uh, Gentlemen. Great episode. Great to talk with you. We will be back next week for more. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.